thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, growing up, I was never a big fan of studying for tests. Maybe some of you can relate to that. But I discovered that oftentimes I I could get away with not studying, just taking what I absorbed by sitting through the class and then just kind of winging it from there. And, you know, I wasn't acing tests, but I was passing them. And so, you know, that was kind of the, the way in which I went about it. And when I started high school, my mother, who was a teacher, she warned me. She says, you know, Matthew, the, the tests are going to be more difficult uh, when you come now into high school. And, and you have to study if you're going to pass. You can't just try to wing things like you've been doing. And, you know, my first test that I was given was in algebra. And she knew that math was not my subject, and uh, you know she was an English teacher, and she says, you know, you're really going to have to study if you're going to pass this test. You know, you're either going to know the problem or you're not. You know, you can't just wing it. And you know, I kind of just blew her off and said, yeah, sure, I can wing it. I'm just going to do what I've been doing. And you know, I get to this first test, and I look down at all these problems, and you know, I don't have a clue of what's going on, and I didn't get one answer right. And so, you know, I get home, and my mom asked me how the test went, and naturally, I said, fine. You know, and she says, well, really, because your teacher called and says she thinks you might not be ready for this class because you didn't get any of the answers right. And then she asked if I studied and I had to admit that I did not. uh, And then I got grounded. But, you know, I didn't accept her warning. I didn't take that on board and I had to suffer the consequences. You know, I'm sure all of us have been given warnings about things that we should do or about things that we shouldn't do, and I'm sure there have been times or maybe many times that you ignored those warnings, you didn't heed those warnings, and then you suffered the consequences because of that. Now, the reason I bring that up is because here in Luke chapter 22, Jesus is going to give several warnings to his disciples. He's going to warn Judas about his betrayal. He's going to warn all of the disciples about the um, pursuing worldly greatness. He's going to warn Peter about denying him. He's going to warn all the disciples about abandoning him. He's going to warn the disciples about what it's going to be like when he's gone. He's going to warn the disciples that they need to pray or they're going to enter into temptation. And so there's all these warnings in this section of scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. And with each one of these warnings, the disciples are faced with a choice. Will they accept and obey what Jesus is warning them in, or will they reject and disobey it? I think this is a great challenge for all of us, because each one of us is given a lot of warnings from God. Whether it's through his word, through the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit, perhaps through another believer. The reality is we're constantly faced with warnings that God places in our path. And the question is, how do we respond to those warnings? As we look at this verse, verses this morning, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about some of the warnings that even recently, as we've been going through Luke chapter 22, there's been a lot, a lot of how we should live, how we should speak, how we should worship, things that we shouldn't do. And I want you to think about those things and the challenges and the warnings that God has brought into your life. And I want you to think about how you have responded to that. Have you been obedient? Have you taken that on board? Have you put those things into practice or have you ignored them? 
and what have been the consequences of that. As we look at the disciples, as we look at the warnings that Jesus gives to them, as we look more importantly at the response that they have to that, I want you to think about your own life and your own responses to what God is warning you in. And if you find that your responses are not godly, are not the way that they should be, I would challenge you before leaving here this morning to ask the Lord to help you to change that. So let's start with the first warning that Jesus gives. It's just to a specific disciple, Judas. Let's see what Jesus has to say, starting in verse 21 of Luke chapter 22. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it would be who would do this thing. Now, remember last week we finished, Jesus just got done explaining this new meaning to the Passover. Now the Passover is pointing to him and the fact that he is going to give his life for the sins of the world. And as they're in this intimate moment and Jesus is explaining these things and they're taking the bread and the wine and all of a sudden in that moment we're all there together in the upper room, he says something that would have been mind-boggling to them. Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. You know, if you look through the Gospels, Jesus has said a lot of maybe shocking things to the disciples, a lot of things that were hard for them to understand. But I'm guessing that this would have been up there towards the top of the list, that these 12 who've been together for three years, that one of them would have the audacity to betray Jesus there in that upper room as he's at the end of his life. And he says to them, one of you guys is going to betray me. And then Jesus goes on to say, and truly the son of man goes as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. When Jesus says the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, he's referring to the fact that this has been prophesied. In the Old Testament, not only does it say that Jesus would die, but it gives a lot more details to it. One of those details was the fact that he would be betrayed by someone close to him. Psalm Chapter 41, verse 9, is a messianic psalm, meaning that it's prophesying about the Messiah. And it prophesies this, Even my own familiar friend in whom I'm trusted, who, I, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The psalm is speaking about the way in which Jesus would be betrayed by someone close to him. And even speaks about eating bread with him is what they just done. They are breaking bread in this Passover meal together. And Jesus then, at that point in time, says, There's one of you that's going to betray me, and that's exactly what Judas does. So Jesus reveals to his disciples, hey, one of you is going to betray me, and this actually shouldn't be shocking news because it was prophesied that this would take place. But then notice Jesus goes on to say, woe to that man by whom Jesus is betrayed. Here Jesus gives a big warning to Judas. Woe to the person who would betray me. Whenever you see that word woe in scripture, that's to make you stop and take notice of, you know, you, this is something that you want to be aware of, something that you don't want to engage in. I think this shows a great love on Jesus' behalf towards Judas. Jesus knows what Judas has been up to. He knows what Judas is planning. And he says, you know what, Judas, I'm giving you another opportunity to stop. I'm giving you an, another opportunity to warn you, don't go through with this. Don't do what you're planning to do. Well, The question is, will Judas listen? Here's the warning. 
It's right there. Judas is actually, we're told, sitting right next to Jesus. John's on one side, Judas is on the other, and all the disciples around. And so Jesus gives this warning. Judas is right there. Is he going to heed it? Is he going to listen to it? Is he going to take it on board? Or is he going to ignore it and just pursue his own sinful plan to betray Jesus? Well, as you probably know, and as we'll look as we continue on the story, Judas continues on. He betrays Jesus. He ignores Jesus' warning, and he suffers some horrible consequences because of it. I think this is an important challenge and warning for us. Because just like with Judas, Jesus loves us too much to not warn us about the sin in our life. When he sees these things in our lives, he wants to reveal it to you. Actually, the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, one of his roles is to convict you of your sin. To reveal these sins in your life because God loves you and wants you to turn from them. He loves you and he wants you to stop doing these things but when jesus shows you your sin when he warns you about the sin how are you going to respond are you going to respond by taking heed to that listening to that obeying that steering clear of that or are you just going to ignore that warning and just continue pursuing those sinful things that you've been doing and i think it's important to know jesus loves you he'll reveal it to you but you know what he's not going to force you to change He's not going to force you to make a choice to say, you know what, I'm going to stop. He's going to show you. He's going to empower you. He will enable you to do it, but he won't force you to do it. That choice is up to you and I. We have to make a choice to say, you know what, Lord, I want to change. I want your help. I want to do something different. As we can see from Judas' life and from our own lives, ignoring Jesus' warning about our sin is a bad idea. It leads to a lot of difficult consequences in our lives. So when Jesus warns us about our sin, we need to listen to him. We need to ask for his help to overcome that. Well, after the disciples hear this news, obviously very bad news, shocking news, one of you 12, Jesus doesn't say who it's going to be. He says, just one of you is going to betray me. Naturally, they start to question among themselves, who's it going to be? I mean, they're looking around. And I'm sure that that led to, you know, some of them discussing different things. But now this conversation changes a bit. It starts with, you know, who in the world is this going to be? And now notice they start disputing among themselves about something. Verse 24. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Well, notice how this easy progression happens. One of you is going to betray me. I'm sure someone said, well, surely not me. Well, why not? You think you're better than me? Well, yes, actually I do. There's no way I would do that to Jesus. Well, there's no way I would do that to Jesus. And all of a sudden it comes to this place of, well, which one of us is the greatest? Because obviously I wouldn't do it and surely you would. And, and so now, you know, they've gotten to this place. And this shouldn't surprise us because this isn't the first time that we've seen them arguing about who's going to be the greatest. This is one of the things recorded in the Gospels the most that they actually discussed among themselves, which is kind of sad. But the reality is, this was a regular conversation. Peter probably saying, I'm going to be greater than you, John, and John, I'm greater than you, Matthew, and Matthew, I'm greater than you. And you know, there was this desire to be the greatest among them. You know, I think this is something that many of us struggle with as well. We like to compare ourselves to others. We like to feel that we're greater than others. But like with the disciples, we often think we are greater than we really are. Former heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali, he was often known for bragging that I'm the greatest 
True story, he's uh, on an airplane uh, about to take off, and the stewardess comes to him and reminds him that he needs to fasten his seatbelt, and Ali responds, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The stewardess quickly responds, Superman don't need no airplane either. Uh, and so he fastens his seatbelt and gets a little bit humbled, but thinking that we're greater than we really are is a struggle that many of us deal with, and it's definitely something the disciples dealt with. And so as the disciples are disputing among themselves as to who is the greatest, Jesus tells them something about what true greatness is in the eyes of God. You see, the desire to pursue greatness isn't wrong. The desire to pursue greatness isn't sinful. When it becomes wrong and sinful is when we pursue worldly greatness instead of godly greatness. So don't miss this. Jesus isn't saying, oh, trying to pursue to be great isn't a bad thing. He's just saying, make sure your pursuit of greatness is in a godly way. Because when your pursuit of greatness is in a worldly way, it just leads to sin and all sorts of problems. You see, that was the real problem the disciples had. It wasn't that they wanted to be great. It was that they wanted to be great in the wrong thing. They wanted to be great in a worldly perspective instead of recognizing what true godly greatness was. And so Jesus gives them a warning, a warning about pursuing this worldly greatness and then also reveals to them what godly greatness is. Notice what he says in verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs is he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves." Jesus starts off revealing how the world views greatness and how the people that the world says are great exercise that greatness. He says, you know, the kings of the Gentiles, those ones that you would consider to be great, they exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. So kings, emperors, those in authority, those that the world in that time would say are great, Jesus says they exercise that authority, that greatness, by lording it over people, by causing other people to serve them. And that would be the same in our society as well, where we kind of elevate those people of power and position to to greatness, and those people are usually the ones that say, well, yo, I'm so great because I have this many people working for me, this many people serving me. People the world considers great are people with authority and influence who have people serving them instead of them serving people. Well, after revealing how the world views greatness, how they exercise that greatness by getting people to serve them, Jesus goes on to tell the disciples, you know what, let me share with you what godly greatness is. Notice what he says in verse 26. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is great among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs, As he who serves. Here Jesus reveals that godly greatness is completely opposite to worldly greatness. After telling his disciples about how the world views greatness and how they exercise greatness, he now goes to tell them how God views greatness and how they should exercise godly greatness. Jesus says, you know what? The world, they think people are great because they get to this position where people serve them, but not so among you. You want to be great in the eyes of God? Don't think, oh, I'm great because of how many people serve me. Recognize your greatness comes in how many people you serve. 
On the contrary, be as the younger and as he who serves. In that society, authority and influence was something that you gained as you got older. Being younger was the the role of lack of influence and least authority. And so Jesus says, you know what? Don't concern yourself with what the world views as this greatness. Be that humble servant who's willing to serve others. Henry Kissinger said this, What is causing so much disharmony among the nations is the fact that some want to beat the big drum, few are willing to face the music, and not one wants to play second fiddle. I think that's an accurate description of our society. Everyone wants to be that guy, but no one wants to be the one who serves. No one wants to be in that position that society ultimately looks at and says, this isn't good, this isn't great. Who wants to be the servant? We want to be the master. Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. With these questions, Jesus once again reveals the the difference between worldly greatness and godly greatness. He's posing this question from the world's perspective. Who is greater in the world's eyes? The person who sits at the table or the person who serves that guy? Isn't it the person who sits there, the one who's at the table, not the one who's serving? Well, that's how the world sees it. Yes, if you're being served, you're greater than the one who's serving you. But then notice what Jesus goes on to say. Yet I am among you as the one who serves. The world regards the one who is served as greater than the one who serves. But Jesus says godly greatness is in serving. And he doesn't just say it, he demonstrates it. His life is a perfect example of what true service is. Now imagine, if there's anyone in the world that ever deserved to be served, it was Jesus, the creator of everything, the master of all. If he came to this earth and demanded service, he would be within his rights to do so because he created us. He could say, you know what, you de- I deserve it, serve me. But that's not how he came. Notice what Mark tells us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was the greatest person ever to live, and he showed what true greatness in the eyes of God is. It's coming to serve, not to be served. So if you want to be great in the eyes of God, follow Jesus' example and serve others. When you are served by others, the world views you as great, but when you serve others, God views you as great. So when it comes to greatness, we need to have that godly perspective, not that worldly perspective. To see serving as something that is glorious, something that is great, something that is wonderful, something that God desires of us to do. Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's Hamburgers, wrote something I thought was interesting. He says, I got my MBA long before my GED. I even have a photograph of me in my MBA graduation outfit a snappy knee-length work apron. I guarantee that I'm the only founder among America's big companies whose picture in the corporate annual report shows him wielding a mop and a plastic bucket. This wasn't a gag. It was a case of leading by example. At Wemdy's, MBA does not mean Master of Business Administration. It means mop bucket attitude. Here's a man who is, you know, multi-multi-millionaire is a huge thing, but he recognized the importance of service. In the kingdom of God, greatness is measured by how many people you serve, not by how many people serve you. Now, the world rewards what they determine to be greatness, but you know what? So does God. 
Notice the next thing that Jesus says to his disciples. Verse 28. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The disciples will receive a unique reward because they are the ones that have continued with Jesus in his trials. Jesus appreciated them. He appreciated their support. The disciples have a special uh, status in the kingdom of God. They're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I think something important to understand about being a servant of Jesus, it does not mean that we go unrewarded. Because that often is our mindset when we think of service. You know, well, well, you're just doing it, but there's no payment, there's no reward. You know, no, that's why no one wants it. We want to be the one that gets rewarded. And oftentimes we, we see it as something that if we do it, you know, there's no benefit to it. But ultimately, God does take care of those who serve him. The God's greatest servants receive greatest rewards. But a caution, we don't serve for the sake of the reward. We serve ultimately because of our love for God and our desire to bring glory to him. Now, the most outspoken disciple throughout the Gospels is Peter. I'm sure Peter had a lot to say when they were debating about who was the greatest. Well, now Jesus has a warning specifically for Peter. Notice what he says, starting in verse 31. Go back one. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Here Jesus reveals something to Peter that Peter was completely unaware of. Jesus says, Peter, I got some news for you. It's not good news, but you need to be aware of it. Satan has asked for you, Peter. He desires to sift you like wheat. Not a message you really want to hear. Hey, hey, here, come here, come here. I got something to tell you. Oh, Jesus, what is it? That's so exciting. Yeah, Satan has asked to ultimately destroy your life. Isn't that great? You know, this is what Jesus is telling Peter. But notice what he goes on to say. I'm sure that was shocking. That was something you don't want to hear. But he says, you know, but I have prayed for you. See, Jesus understood the spiritual battle that that Peter was completely unaware of. Peter didn't know that Satan was wanting to uh, sift him like wheat. He didn't know what was going on, but Jesus was very aware of it. Jesus warns Peter of it, but Jesus also brings comfort to Peter by saying, you know what, but I have prayed for you. What prevented Satan from having his way with Peter had nothing to do with Peter. Peter didn't even know what was going on. What it had to do with was the fact that Jesus prayed for on Peter's behalf. As we soon will see, Peter had his own opportunity to be praying, but he chooses not to. And unfortunately for him, it ends badly. You know, what Jesus did for Peter is something that he does for us as well. Um, Back. Romans 8.34 says, It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. These are great comforting verses to recognize Jesus is always praying for you. He's always praying for me. 
The thought of Jesus interceding for us, protecting us from Satan is a wonderful thing. I mean, how many times would we have been destroyed? How many things would have happened in our life if Jesus wasn't there interceding for us to the Father? I think the fact that Jesus prays for us should bring great comfort and encouragement. But notice what Jesus prayed for Peter specifically, that your faith should not fail. You see, Jesus is aware of what's going to happen. He's warning Peter of what's going to take place. He's not ignorant to it. He knows what's going to take place. He knows Peter's going to deny him. But he says, you know, I prayed that your faith would not fail. You see, Peter's faith would falter, but it would not fail. Jesus obviously didn't see this temporary lapse in being willing to stand up for Jesus as a complete failure of faith. He saw it as a lapse of faith because he knew Peter would come back to him. He knew this wasn't the end. He knew that Peter wasn't just going to deny him and walk away. He knew he was going to have that moment of weakness, but he was going to turn back and continue to follow Jesus. And notice the great encouragement that Peter gets from Jesus. Jesus says, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Notice Jesus doesn't say, if you return to me, you know, you're going to deny me. And if you choose to return to me, well, then good. He says, when you do it, you're going to do it, Peter. I'm telling you right now, you're going to return to me and take that as a comfort because I know once you deny me, there's going to be bitterness and sadness in what you do. But trust me, you will return to me. And when you do, go and strengthen your brethren. You know, when Peter heard Jesus say, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, when he heard Jesus tell him that he prayed his faith would not fail, when he heard Jesus say, when you have returned to me, which implies that you will turn away, Peter doesn't like what he hears. And he responds to these things by saying, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter doesn't like what he's hearing from Jesus. He doesn't accept what he's hearing from Jesus. He wants Jesus to know, Jesus, you're wrong. You're wrong about me. I'm not going to do that. I'm ready to die for you. I'm willing to give my life for you. There's no way I'm going to deny you. There's no way I'm going to do these things that you're telling me to do. I'm not weak like this. I am strong. You know, oftentimes the only focus on what Jesus says to Peter during this time in the upper room, because Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel doesn't bring up the fact that Jesus says something to all the disciples. And I want us to note that in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14, verse 27 through 31. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows thrice, that you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Notice here, Mark brings up an important reality. It's not just Jesus speaking to Peter. First, Jesus warns all the disciples. All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Basically, Jesus is saying, you know what? Every one of you is going to abandon me tonight. This time in my greatest need, the greatest trial, when I'm about to give my life for the sins of the world, my closest disciples are all not going to be there. And we note that Jesus is alone. They all scatter. They all abandon him. It wasn't just Peter. It wasn't just Judas. Every single one of them abandoned Jesus. But he told them it was going to happen. And they basically have two different ways they could respond to this statement that they're going to abandon Jesus. First, they could respond by accepting that Jesus knew what he was talking about, that they have a weakness, 
and that they need Jesus' strength to help them overcome that. Or they could respond by rejecting what Jesus is saying, that they're weak, convince themselves that they're strong, and basically tell Jesus he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, unfortunately, all of them choose to reject what Jesus says, choose to think that they're much stronger than they really are, and unfortunately suffer the consequences of that. Peter is the first one to reject the notion that he's weak. He basically says, even if all these other guys, the other 11, they might walk away, Jesus. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they probably will, but I wouldn't. Why? Because I'm stronger than them. That's ultimately what Peter is saying. Even if all of these guys do it, I won't do it. I would die for you. I'd give my life for you. Don't tell me I'm weak because I'm not. I'm strong. But then Jesus has some pretty strong words for Peter. Actually, that's not true, Peter. You're going to deny me three times. Jesus gave Peter an opportunity to take heed and consider his own weakness. It was an opportunity, sadly, that Peter did not take. And he speaks more vehemently, which means with more conviction and intense feelings and forcefully, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. You're wrong about me, Jesus. I won't do this. What you're saying isn't true. And notice after Peter said that, we're told, and they all said likewise. It wasn't just Peter who said, we'd die for you. It wasn't just Peter who said, you're wrong, Jesus. Every single disciple in the room said, you're wrong. This isn't us. We wouldn't do this. Jesus told all the disciples they were going to abandon him, but they all said, we would die for you. We would never abandon you. Peter and the rest of the disciples made the mistake that most of us do as well. They thought they were stronger than they really were. I think one of our greatest weaknesses is when we think we, we are stronger than we are. The Apostle Paul warns us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, when we think we're beyond the reach of some sin, of some weakness, of some failure, we think, oh, I'm too strong for that. I'm too mature for that. I would never succumb to that. That's when we're ready for a fall. You know, I have sympathy on the disciples. I don't look at them and think, how could you guys? Come on. Because I see myself. I've done this so many times in my own life, my own relationship with God, where he says things to me, reveals things to me, shows me a weakness that I have, and I say, no, 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 that's not me. You just watch what I'll do, Lord. You watch. I won't do that. I won't succumb to that. I won't fall into that. I remember when I rededicated my life to the Lord, God made very clear to me I was too weak to hang out with the friends that I was hanging out with and partying with. And I thought, no, I'm going to influence them. I'm going to influence them to Christ. And this is going to be great. I have to continue with these relationships, Lord. You're wrong about me. I'm not too weak. I'm strong. You know, I'm now following you. This is going to be great. Look what I do. Look at how I reach them for you. And I learned the hard way. He was right. I wasn't the one influencing them. They were the ones influencing me and dragged me back into things that I shouldn't have been doing, and I had to repent and recognize Jesus was right. I was weak when I thought I was strong. The disciples foolishly thought Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. Jesus, we're not going to abandon you. What are you thinking? How foolish and arrogant of any of us to say, you know what, Jesus, you're wrong and I'm right. What you're telling me isn't true. If we're ever in that place, trust me, we're wrong because Jesus is Never wrong. 
Well, now that Jesus has warned the disciples of their own weakness, he wants to tell them things are about to change. I'm about to leave, and the way in which the world treats you is going to change. Here's a nice another warning that they probably don't want to hear. Verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandal, did you lack anything? So they said, Nothing. Then he said to them, But now, he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you, that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. If you remember back in chapter 9, Jesus sends his disciples out to minister to people. And, and notice he gives them some specific things to basically not take. Verse 3, it says, And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two, two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Jesus reminds them of this. You guys remember when I sent you out before and I basically told you to take nothing? Did you lack anything? And they all said, no, we didn't lack anything. You totally took care of us. He said, well, you know what? Things are going to change now. Something is about to take place. I'm about to be killed. I'm not going to be with you any longer. And the world that has received you well, they're not going to anymore. Persecution is coming. There's going to be a change that is happening. And so you guys need to be aware of this change. When you go out, you're going to have to go out differently. But now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So Jesus is helping them see, hey, things are going to be different. You went out one way before. Now you've got to go out a different way because now persecution's coming. Now difficulty is coming. The world receives you well before, but they're not going to this time through. And the disciples respond as they often do, kind of missing the point. Lord, here are two swords. Jesus says in this translation, it's enough, but that's really a bad translation. The HSBC translates it much more accurately. Enough of that. Adam Clark, the Greek scholar, says the Greek word uh, or phrase translated as enough was Jesus' way of ending the conversation. The Greek phrase means enough of this kind of talk about swords and fighting. He says the phrase is not connected to swords at all. So Jesus isn't saying two swords will be enough. Obviously, two swords can never be enough against the army that's coming against Jesus. He's saying enough of that talk. You guys are missing it. I'm about to be killed. Things are going to be very different. You guys need to be prepared. I'm warning you about the persecution that's coming, but you'll learn that soon enough. So the disciples have just heard about some serious things that are going to happen. One of you is going to betray me. All of you are going to abandon me. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And you know what? I'm going to, deny, I'm going to die and things are going to get pretty bad. Not a, a very good message that they you know, wanted to hear. Plenty of warnings about what's about to transpire. After hearing these things that Jesus says, they all leave the upper room and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to notice what Jesus is doing in the garden and what the disciples are doing especially considering the message they just heard. Jesus just gave all of them some strong warnings about things that are about to take place, things they're about to do, about the fact that they are weak and that they need to prepare themselves for what's coming. And notice how Jesus prepares. He knows what's coming. He knows this is going to be the worst moment of his life 
where he's about to be arrested and he's about to be killed and he's about to take the sin of the world on himself. Notice what he does in this last moment while he's still free and notice what his disciples do as well there in the Garden of Gethsemane, starting in verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as, was, as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer, he had come to his disciples. He found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Jesus and his disciples, they get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus gives them another very important warning. He says, Pray. And the reason you need to pray is so that you don't enter into temptation. It's coming. And you need to pray now to prepare for it. Guys, if you don't want to enter into temptation, you need to pray. And then Jesus goes about a stone's throw away from them, and he starts putting his own advice into practice. He starts praying. Jesus is now only hours away from the most difficult thing anyone in all of history ever went through. So how does he prepare for that? What does he do to prepare for the horrors that are coming? He prayed. Jesus knew that prayer was an essential key to making it through any great trial. He also knew that the disciples needed to pray if they were going to make it through the trial that was coming to them. Jesus prays, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew of the horrible things that were coming. He says, if there's another way, another way to redeem mankind, let's do that but not my will, but yours be done. There was no other way, and Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. But notice that phrase, which I think is so important, not my will, but yours be done. This should be our prayer in the way in which we live our lives. Not my will, Jesus, but yours be done. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he said, pray God's will be done as it is on earth. Or God's will be done on earth, sorry, as it is in heaven. Too much of our lives and our prayers are all about our will, what we want, and not God's will and what he desires. We need to follow Jesus' example and pray and live God's will in our lives. Our biggest concern should be God's will, not our own. After Jesus prays, notice what happened. God answers his prayer. An angel appears to Jesus and gives him strength for the trial that he's about to face. And I think this is important to note because so often when we face trials, what do we pray? We say, Lord, remove it. I don't want it anymore. Take this trial away from me. But I have found in my own life, and you read through church history, you read through saints of old, I think the most common response that God gives is not to remove trials from your life. He does that sometimes, but I think that is much more infrequent to the amount of times he says, you know what, I'm not going to remove the trial, but what I will do is give you everything you need to get through it. He comes to Jesus with an angel who strengthens Jesus for what's about to come. And in the same way, when we say, Lord, I have this trial, I want you to remove it. He says, you know what, I'm not going to remove this, but I am going to give you what you need. I am going to strengthen you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to give you whatever you need to face this trial and get through it. And I will be with you 
every step of the way. This is so often what we deal with and what we need to remember. Luke goes on to tell us, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Knowing what was about to happen to him, Jesus was not unaware. He wasn't taken off guard. He was very clear of what he was about to do, very clear of what was going to take place. This great agony came upon him, that so much agony that he actually sweat drops of blood. You know, there have been medical cases where there is such great amount of stress that literally blood comes through the pores, uh, sweat glands, uh, because you're under such great stress. And we see actually this happening to Jesus. Notice Jesus responds to this agony by praying more earnestly. The agony hits. He's aware of what's going to take place. And instead of responding in any other way, he says, you know what, I'm going to pray even more earnestly because I recognize that is what is one of the most valuable things I can do for the trial that's about to come. The greater your agony, the greater your stress, the greater their trial, the more earnest you need to pray. Oftentimes we pray things don't quite go the way we want and we abandon it instead of saying, I'm going to pray even more earnestly because I recognize that is what I need to get through this difficulty. Well, Jesus arises from prayer and he goes over to his disciples. Remember, they're only a stone's throw away. And notice what they're doing. You see, the trial is not just going to hit Jesus. It's going to hit Jesus worse than the disciples. But the disciples are about to face a big trial themselves. Jesus has warned them of that reality. And he's told them, pray, here's a warning, guys, that you don't enter into temptation. So he comes over and all of them are on their knees with hands held and they're praying to the Lord. No, they're all asleep. They're sleeping. And the other gospel tells us this happens three times. It'll be one thing, okay, they fell asleep. Jesus says, wake up. You guys pray that you might not enter into temptation. Oh, sorry, Jesus. And he goes back away. And you think, oh, then they start praying. No, they go to sleep again. Jesus comes back. Come on, guys. What are you doing? You need to be praying right now. Jesus leaves again. Comes back once again. Finds them sleeping. And the moment that they needed to be praying to prepare themselves for what was coming, they didn't. And I find this interesting, an interesting connection that I want you to note. You see, they didn't believe that they were weak. They didn't believe what Jesus told them about what was going to happen, that you know, there was going to be betrayal and denial and abandonment. And they all said, no, 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 we would die for you. You're wrong, Jesus. We're not weak. And here's a, a byproduct of that kind of prideful thinking. When you don't think you're weak and you don't think you need God, guess what you don't do? Pray. Because prayer is ultimately a, a, a statement of humility. Lord, I need your help. I'm coming to you because I can't do it on my own. I'm coming to you because I need you to intervene on my behalf. I'm coming to you because I am weak and I need you to help me in this circumstance. Well, guess what? These 12 didn't believe that. And so in a time when they should have been praying, in a time that they should have been preparing for the temptation and the trial, hey, we got this. We're going to all die for Jesus. We're, We're strong. We're willing to give our lives for him. When they should have been praying, they were sleeping. And Jesus in another gospel tells them, you know what? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit desires to pray, but your flesh is weak and you're giving into it. And one of the reasons is because you don't actually recognize your own weakness. You don't recognize your need for me to intervene on your behalf right now. You know, if we want to be victorious over temptation in our life, we've got to humble ourselves. We've got to come to God in prayer. And I have found, you know what? If you wait till you're bombarded with the temptation, sometimes that's too late to start praying. 
It's a great time to pray, don't get me wrong, but I have found that, you know what, if you haven't prayed prior to that, if you haven't prepared yourself for the trial that's coming, oftentimes you're at a place now where you just fall, you just fail. I would encourage you, if the disciples, and I think could have been a very different circumstance, if they were praying instead of sleeping, what would have happened when the soldiers came, when all this took place? I think a very different response could have come from them because of the strength that God would have given them through that time of prayer. But you know what? When we're not praying, we're not preparing ourselves for the sin, the temptation, the issues that we deal with, and all of a sudden, boom, it's there in front of us. It's unlikely that we're going to respond in a positive way at that moment. But when we've taken time to pray and prepare for those things that are coming, and then when they do come, you'll find much more success and victory in that. You know, all of us know the temptations that we go through that are regular, that are common, that are our weaknesses. I would encourage you, start the day. Lord, I always deal with this. I always struggle with this. Help me today to be victorious. Help me today in these areas because I need it and I recognize it and I need your help. The disciples were warned that they were going to abandon Jesus. They didn't listen. Jesus gives several warnings to the disciples. And with each one of them, sadly, every single warning is rejected. Every single warning is not taken heed to. Every single warning is just kind of blown off. And each one of them, as we continue the story, we see the consequences. Judas, the worst consequence of all, because he doesn't listen to the warning of, don't go through with this. Don't betray me. The disciples are warned not to abandon, but they don't listen suffer the consequences. Peter's warned, you're going to deny me. He doesn't listen, suffers the consequences. They're warned to pray that they don't enter into temptation. They don't listen and sleep, suffer the consequences. The disciples would have listened. If they would have taken heed, things would have been different. And I I started with you thinking about the times in which God warns you and how you respond to that. And I'm sure, hopefully, you have both sides. There have been times where you realize, yeah, I totally rejected that warning. I didn't obey what God said. And I suffered some serious consequences because of it. And I hope that you have instances in your life where you also can say, but there have been times when God has warned me and I took a hold of that warning. And I said, Lord, I'm going to obey that. Help me with that. And you've seen the victory that comes with it. Jesus loves us enough to warn us of our sin, but we need to trust him enough to listen to what he has to say and to ask for his help. And I just want to close this morning putting this into practice. I just want to be quiet before the Lord and give you an opportunity as we've seen the need for prayer, as we saw the disciples sleeping instead of praying. Let's take a moment this morning to come. You know your issues. You know what you're struggling with. You know the the things that are weak and sinful in your life that you need God's help with. I want to encourage you this morning to ask him to help you with that. Today, for the rest of the week, the rest of the month, the rest of the year, that's starting this pattern of, Lord, I want to bring this to you and ask you to help me be victorious over these things, realizing we're all weak. We all have that sin nature. We all have issues that we deal with. They might be different issues, but it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. We still all have them, and we all still need Jesus to help us with them. And so let's just take some time, just you quietly before the Lord, to come and ask for his strength and his help as we come into this next week. And watch what he does. Watch how he answers and gives you what you need. So let's just take some time to do that, and I'll close this in prayer.